The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from John chapter 2, verses 2 through 11. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Charles. Good morning, everyone. Okay. I guess not. <laughs> All right, well, um, good morning for me, and I hope it's good morning to you as well. So it's great delight to be here with you as usual. My name is Paul Lim. I serve here at Christ Press as the uh, scholar in residence, and it's a great delight to um, learn together with you both uh, in the adult Sunday school classes as well as you're at the pulpit sometimes. So um, we are going through a series called Encounters with Christ, and today's theme is about wine and wedding and feast and parties, and maybe to get us to think about that more properly, uh, I thought maybe we'll look at some slides of some of the uh, Sunday school children drawing their pictures of what they would love to see at a feast. So just a sample few here. This is Harper, age six. Uh, I think it's pizza at the top, it says, and it's a mushroom topping. And what I liked about that is it's got that concentric circles going outward with the ray. That means infinite size of dough to be served at this feast. The next one is interesting too. Pizza, lime, ice cream crab, shrimp, and then this other one really interests me, she crab soup from Marables, <laughs> M-A-R-I-B-L-E-S. So I googled that word and found that there's a restaurant in Birmingham, England, only to find out in an email after this first sermon, somebody emailed me and said, no, it actually is from a place in Brentwood called Marables, M-E-R-E-B-U-L-L-E-S. So somebody corrected me and said, no, actually it's local. So. She's gone to that one, I guess, or he's gone to that one. So nice feast right there. Next one, lots of assorted items. So I could, I could tell that in the middle is a fish and broccoli and some kind of bread, cookie maybe, and so a number of things, nine items on this feast. That's great. And in contrast, oh, they're similar. So next, go to the next one that they actually tell us what they are. Drumstick, <laughs> strawberry, rice. Carrot, now I love this one, radish at a feast with ranch dressing. So, 
So compared to the many items, the next one is going to be just one item. You ready for this? Steak, spelled S-T-A-K-E. That student is staking his claim or her claim. Well, would you like to one, eat at a feast? Just one thing, steak, and with nicely marbled in the middle, right? I guess that's what it is. So very, very detail-conscious, this particular student. So as I was looking at these slides and pictures, I was actually reminded of one of my favorite quotes about the Bible. This is from a 6th century uh, Christian writer and bishop named Gregory the Great. And we'll actually like to read it together if you're able. This actually talks about the profound simplicity of the Bible as well as the simple profundity of the Bible, meaning something like this. Someone who's very simple and, un un and unlearned can learn something really important about the Bible as well as somebody who spent one's entire life studying the Bible will still not be able to touch the depth of it in entirely. So if you're able, let's read this together. The Word of God by the mysteries which it contains, exercises the understanding of the wise, so usually by what presents itself on the outside, it nurses the simple-minded. It presents in open day that form which little children may be fed. It keeps in secret that whereby men of a loftier range may be held in suspense of admiration. It is, as it were, a kind of river, if I may so compare, which is both shallow and deep, wherein both the lamb can walk and the elephant can swim. Let's focus on that for a minute, just that last slide. Yeah, where the lamb can walk and elephant can swim. A river that is called the Bible, where elephant, I mean, a little lamb can walk and touch the bottom, and at the same time, an elephant with all their weightiness and size cannot touch the bottom in both these contexts. Because today's scripture that has been read for us is sort of like that. It's John chapter 2. It's the story of Jesus turning water into wine at this village wedding. And as we do so, let's actually turn to the Lord once again in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for today. Thank you for all of the brothers and sisters who are here worshiping you. Pray that through our humble act of and bumbling act of worship, that you will find our satisfaction in Jesus and Jesus alone, that it is his act of worship and sacrifice that made all worship activities meaningful and acceptable to you. And as you have turned the water into wine at Cana in Galilee, may you turn our waters into wine in the same way, Lord. In your name, amen. Okay, so today's text is ostensibly about Jesus going to a wedding in a village at Cana. In other words, a rather obscure place in our cultural geography. There he helps his groom's family to avoid a major social faux pas or mishap in, ruining, in running out of wine, thereby potentially ruining their reputation. Imagine going to a birthday party for a second grader and they don't have a birthday cake. Imagine going to somebody else's dinner and the caterer failed to deliver. You can, and if you're the host of that, you know, if you're that second grader, having invited 20 of your friends, no birthday cake. If you're that mom or dad who's invited about 15 friends for dinner and the caterer who was supposed to come, or let's say you're trying to cook and it just went bonkers. 
Imagine the fear, imagine the potential embarrassment that we might have. And it's all in imagination. You've never actually faced that, I'm sure. So they face this kind of potential mistake. And then it all turns out just fine. And it's the wedding of coming together of not only two individuals, but two families and two villages, etc., etc. So before we delve into the specific points of today's text, I'd like to start by making some observations about what people, perhaps both inside and outside the church, assume about Christianity. So today's story is about Jesus turning water into wine, as I said. But many people are afraid that if they came to Jesus, he will turn their wine into water. You know what I mean? I know plenty of people, including me, before I became a Christian as a junior in college, one of the fears I had about becoming a Christian was that fun as I knew it will be over. Life as I knew it will be over. And that was one of the major hang-ups about Christianity that I had. And as I've been teaching here at Vanderbilt for 13 years, in Boston for five, and a couple of years in England, I come to realize the same thing, that many young people, as well as not-so-young people, one of their fears about becoming a Christian is that somehow Jesus will take their water and turn it into, uh, somehow Jesus will take their wine and turn that into tap water, barely drinkable. And that seems like that fear. So if you don't remember much else from this sermon, please dwell on this which is always a dangerous thing to say in the beginning of a sermon, but maybe that's okay. Try to remember this one. Do I think Jesus is turning water into wine in my life, thereby giving more joy and delight in my journey toward God? Or do I think Jesus is turning my vintage wine into tepid water, thereby giving me a set of rules to follow and behaviors to change? And that's it. If you think like that, actually, you're not alone. Friedrich Nietzsche is someone whose name we've heard about here and there, even at Christ's Pres a number of times, both from Pastor Scott and others. He was a German philosopher, lived in the 19th century, known for a lot of things, but in our pop culture, he's probably known for this saying, what doesn't kill us simply make us stronger. I think I saw that in a Guinness beer bottle one time, and also in Katy Perry's song. Is that Katy Perry sings that what doesn't kill you will make only stronger? I think it's Katy Perry. I don't know much about pop culture, but there it is. Much more than that, though, Friedrich Nietzsche was an astute observer of culture and human behavior, especially about Christianity in Europe. He said that there are two types of ideas about human flourishing, Apollonian and Dionysian. What on earth is that? Apollo, right, the god of reason, Dionysius, the god of festivities. And he says there are two kind of polar opposite impulses, both for individuals as well as institutions. Apollonian would be driven by thinking, self-control, rationality, logic, order, the dream state, principle of individualism, value for human order and culture, and human beings as objects. Dionysian, which is the model that Nietzsche prefers, says it is feeling rather than thinking, passionate rather than self-control, irrational rather than rational, instinctual, chaotic rather than ordered, state of intoxication rather than dream state, wholeness of existence rather than principles of individualism, and celebration of nature rather than value for human culture and human beings as subjects 
rather than objects, human beings as those who are in control of their destiny rather than subjugating themselves to some religion or deity. For Nietzsche, Christianity, especially Christianity in Europe at that time, was responsible for creating such a killjoy culture that represses human desires and redirects it to something more meaningless and vacuous. To quote him here, Christianity was from the beginning especially and fundamentally life's nausea and disgust with life, merely concealed behind, masked by, dressed up as faith in another or faith in a better life, as it says in his book, The Birth of Tragedy. Maybe Nietzsche has a point. If you were to limit your definition of Christianity as improving of manner and behavior control, whether seen as the Roman Catholic Inquisition in the 14th and 15th and 16th centuries or New England examples of Salem witch hunt in the 17th century, in that regard and that alone, Nietzsche is spot on. However, Christianity is not, nor should it be, ultimately about what one does and what one doesn't do. It is not behavioristic reductionism. So if we were to stand before the Lord and say, I didn't drink, I didn't play cards, I didn't go to movies, and God forbid, I didn't go to any discos, so Lord, let me into heaven, please. Yay. No, I don't think so. It seems that judged from that interpretation of Christianity, again, Nietzsche is right. But then the question becomes, is that portrait of Christianity the right one? In today's text, we see the first miracle that Jesus performs at a wedding party. He, of all things he could do, goes to a village wedding, turns water into wine. And here's something else that we need to ponder and think about. The gospel writer John has a very interesting purpose and different way of working his materials into a written product, and that is, whereas the gospel writers Matthew, Mark, and Luke the so-called synoptic writers were much more concerned about and committed to keeping some kind of chronology of Jesus' life. John, on the other hand, has much more interest in keeping the theme. So he's much more of a theologically approaching this to topic rather than chronology. He is wanting to show, first and foremost, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the messianic aspirations and longings that the people of Israel had. They were exiled before. They were not living in a country of their own. They didn't have their own national sovereignty. They were actually being subject to the imperial Rome. And all of these collective experiences were bubbling up within this Jewish mindset, waiting for God to show up in a big way in the Messiah. And what John is trying to show is that by putting together several stories together, what he's trying to demonstrate is, aha, uh -huh, Jesus is the one that you've been waiting for. And isn't that interesting? at least it is to me, that he begins with this village wedding turning water into wine. What is the significance of that? So I have uh, three points to our sermon and one kind of added as a coda. It was a three plus one, I guess. Sort of four, but three is better than four, I guess. Um, the first point is party's almost over, no more wine. Second point is party's just getting good, Jesus the wine giver. Third point is invitation to a real party, Jesus as the wine himself. And then fourth and the final point will be, what about me, Lord? I don't feel invited to the party. So let's go to the first point. 
Party's almost over, no more wine. You may have been to a party where they run out of stuff to eat or drink, and the light goes on, and it's time to go home. And uh, that's probably not that much fun. They're about to face something like this in this village wedding some 2,000 years ago. Right? Think about that. Think about, and did you know that most Jewish weddings around this time period were not one-day event? There are multiple-day events, so often four to five or six days long. So that means that there will be a prolonged period of merrymaking, really being excited about someone else's presence, and really equally excited about the fact that somebody's getting married. Two people are really kind of committing themselves to a life of uh, bonded together in the name of Yahweh. And there will be lots of food and lots of wine, and to run out of that will be a real embarrassment for you. Think of the most kind of a stigmatized thing in your culture, in your community right now. And think of that and think of this as something that is equivalent, that they're about to do so. And but putting it a different way, we all run out of wine. If you were to define wine as something that we value as the giver of meaning and joy and delight, right? Whether it is a physical wine, literal wine itself, or some other things that we hold on to as something that will give us joy. It could be, I don't know, your Xbox, or you could be your golf game, or your career, or your friends. Whatever that wine is, we will run out of wine. We will run out. And they're about to experience that right here. So for some younger kids, it may be like the most fantastic roller coaster rider at Disney World or Universal Studio. That, too, will come to an end. And you'll have to wait another, what, five, six, seven hours to get onto the same one again, unless you have like a fast pass or something that seems always exorbitant for me to pay. But you get the picture. All good wines, whether for children or not, they will run out. We run out of wine, as we have facing right here. We love parties and good feasts. And you know what, friends? We're made for that. Do you hear that? We are made for good parties and feasts because God, in the creation story of Genesis 2, says to Adam and Eve, what? You can eat fruit from any tree in the garden. Did you hear that? God didn't say you can only eat from one or two trees and that's all. You got 40 other trees, but you can't eat that. No, God is not some kind of stingy or parsimonious God at all. God says, look at all of these things I made for you. There will be what? I don't know, all the things that you might like. Banana tree over here will be, I don't know, a kiwi tree over there, pineapple tree. God is not just saying you can only eat apple. God is not saying you can only eat banana. God says you can eat all of these things as a way of expressing my love for you and my gift to you is all of these bountiful things. And yet, what do we do? We fix ourselves onto that one thing. Therefore, our problem primordially and even now, has much to do with eating disorder. Eating that which we shouldn't be eating and not eating that which we should be eating. Thus, it led us into cosmic disorder and moral chaos. Eating and drinking had gotten, into, gotten us into problems before, and it does now. And I say it with all sensitivity. But you know what else? In this story, as we visit in John 2, did you know that almost no one else knew that they had almost run out of water? It is, did you hear that? So at this party, they were having parties for three, four days, and they just were run, ran out of wine. Jesus' mother knew because she might have been told by some people, hey, we ran out of water, uh, wine. So some scholars have speculated that Mary must have been some close associate with the, the, the givers of this wedding party. Whatever the case may have been, she's told that there is no more wine, right? 
And but no one else really knew. They were all going through this party pretty, pretty happy and excited about that. Let me try to illustrate it this way. So when I was in college, you know, I did a number of different things, but one thing I really enjoyed doing was I was a DJ in college. I DJed for four years, and I really loved it. DJ for a radio station for a little bit, and did a lot of private parties. And at this one particular party in my sophomore year, so I had yet, uh, I, I became a Christian as a junior in college, and so at this party I was uh, DJing, one person came up and she said, can you play this song? She made a request, and I said, sure. And she asked me, do you know the song by uh, Bonnie Tyler called Total Eclipse of the Heart? I said, yeah, I do. And she goes, can you play that for me? I thought, that's kind of odd, and I'll tell you why it is kind of odd, but I actually had the disco version of that song. How many of you know, know that song, Total Eclipse of the Heart? Okay, there are quite a few of you. Right, maybe you listen to it, maybe dance to it, I don't know. You know, the lyrics of that song go something like this. Once upon a time I was falling in love, now I'm only falling apart, Total Eclipse of the Heart. And there were, I don't know, about 50, 60 people dancing, milling around. And I noticed a couple of people like listen to the words and left. Others just kind of dance, continue to dance because that's what you do. And see, I wasn't a Christian at the time, but I noticed some kind of incongruity, right? Here's a sad song, tragic song. I was at one time falling in love. Now I'm falling apart, complete eclipse of the heart. And yet I was playing the song. People are dancing. We're driving some modicum of joy in our pursuit of dance moves and whatever, and here is something that I came to realize after I became a Christian. You know what? So often we do that. So often we kind of exchange for the real good. I mean, I, I like that song actually, but I don't know if I would play it at a dance. I would encourage like, hey, go dance to, to this particular song. Falling apart, total eclipse of our heart. Sometimes people have no idea, even though God, out of God's bountiful common grace, gives us all these good and perfect gifts, and yet we're so oblivious to the giver that the beautiful weather and beautiful sunset, beautiful things that we enjoy, we forget to give her for the gifts. Wine is almost gone. No more wine. Second point, quickly, party's just getting good. Jesus, the wine giver. So there's a news. They're almost run out of wine, and Mary tells Jesus, hey, they have no more wine. And let's listen to what Jesus says. See, here in this story, what we see here clearly is far from being a party pooper, he was, as one person called it funnily, party popper. That he actually makes party come alive because otherwise it would have gone bad, gone sour, no more wine, right? So he does turn water into wine. Something we take for granted all the time. I mean, how many of you are like, wow, this is a great story as you have heard it today? I don't know. I think we tend to kind of take it for granted. Okay, water into wine. Really? I mean, imagine if you had someone turning water into wine at your party. You would have them around all the time. And that maybe is the point. Maybe we should want Jesus around our life all the time because he does turn our insipid water into wine. But more than that in just a few minutes. So verse 1, let's have a look. Verse 1 tells us on the third day. So John, as I mentioned to you, has a very kind of theological purpose of driving home this point, and he uses, he uh, wastes no expressions and no phrases, and whenever he uses these words, he's kind of signaling the, signaling, signaling the reader, hey, I'm telling you something. It's almost like, what do we use, like emojis, or, you know, like, hey, I want to I wanna express myself to you. What John is trying to do here is, if you were to write it in today's kind of email or something, he would boldface it or italicize it. On the third day, what does that sound like, the third day? What is the third day? Why is that third day important in the Christian tradition? Can someone help me? 
The resurrection. That's right, the resurrection. So the writer of John, the John himself, is signaling to the readers, hey, 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 this water into wine story has a lot to do with the resurrection. And the reader might be thinking, hmm, what? And that's the point. He wants you to really delve into the story and really meet the punchline, Jesus himself. On the third day, resurrection signaling here by John. And also look at verse 4. Jesus' response to his mother is that, why do you involve me, woman? And he says, my hour has not yet come. That's the key phrase right there, my hour. What is Jesus' hour? Why is that so important? See, throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come once. And then other times he says, my hour has finally come. What is that hour? The hour of glory, the hour, the appointed hour. If you think about your life journey so far, what is that apex moment of your life journey? Could have been high school graduation, could be middle school graduation, could be college graduation, could be winning, I don't know, state championship or spelling bee or getting married or drinking wine, I don't know, whatever it may be. But you think of that apex experience, climax experience, and for Jesus, that's what he means, my hour has not yet come, but later on in John chapter 7, 30, 8, 20, 12, 23, and three other places, he will actually say, my hour has finally come. What is that hour? Again, as we've said, connected to the third day, it is that the, the, the whole purpose for which he was sent, it is to live among us, to die for us, and to perfect the law. So in his both active obedience, and meaning living out the law, as well as passive obedience, enduring the wrath of God on the cross. So that, that is his hour. And Jesus says, you know what? My hour has not yet come, but I want you to notice something. So that seems to sound like a, 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 a no, right? My hour has not yet come. But notice what Jesus' mother says to the servants. What does she say? She says, do whatever he tells you. So she knows that he's up to something, something good. She knows that even though he says, my hour has not yet come, she senses, knowing her son as she did, that he's not merely going to turn away this quotidian request as being silly and stupid. She knows that he's not going to turn away someone with that kind of request. See, for some people, Jesus seems like such a lofty deity. Jesus seems so far off. Jesus could not possibly be bothering with my request and my problems. And we'll see later on that that is not at all the case with Christ, whose omniscient love, all-knowing love, reaches down to all of us. There's no one who says, I am so far beyond the love of God that I cannot possibly come to God. So Jesus' mother says, do whatever he tells you. But then notice in verse 6, it tells us there were stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification. What does that mean? See, again, John, as you might remember, was a very observant Jew. He was a very, very faithful keeper and a, and a worshiper of Yahweh and lover of the Torah, which means he was a great Jew. And what he's doing is he's now juxtaposing these jars that were used for Jewish rites of purification and what Jesus is about to do. What does he do? He takes that water, and what's he say? Draw that water and take it, and you'll serve that as wine. I mean, imagine. And I didn't mention this in, our, in my two previous sermons, but, you know, imagine yourself being one of those servants. Imagine yourself as the waiter or waitress. And you're being told by, the, by Jesus, go draw this water and serve it? I mean, what would you think? I mean, you're saying, no, I'm not going to. I would probably ask, like, what? But we're not told that they actually kind of whatever talk back. But it, the whole point is this. Jesus has firm control over this 
mundane affair, which could go haywire pretty soon, and tells them, look, you follow my, and Mary says, trust him. No matter what he says, listen and do it. What he's going to do is this wonderful system of Jewish worship, rites of purification. What he's going to do is take that wonderful thing and make it even more wonderful. Take something beautiful and make it even more splendid. What he's going to do is he's going to fulfill the promise of Jewish practices and prophecies and says, here, voila, here am I. I am here to do your will. I'm here to fulfill all the promises that God has made. Rather than demonizing Jewish religion and practices, Jesus is saying, look here, Moses wrote about me. Verse 10 tells us about that irony. The irony is this. The master of the banquet says, listen, you actually have served, you know, uh, um, okay wine in the beginning, and now you've kept the real great wine now. I don't know if you had have thrown parties and we serve. You know, most people do the opposite, as he says, right? Most people will serve the good wine in the beginning because after you've had one glass or two glasses of wine, your senses may be a little bit dulled and you have the third glass. You can't really tell whether there's good wine or not. I have done that. And if you're laughing, I think you know what I'm talking about. If you don't know what I'm talking about, blessed are you. Really blessed are you. So the master of banquet knows this is a standard practice in Jew Jewish practice as well as American practice. That's what we do. But you see, notice the words, you have kept the best until now. That's God's way. God's way is saying, look, I've kept the best until now. You may feel like I've been journeying with God as a Christian for these years and it kind of sucks. It's not working out. Okay, I, I understand, but hang on please. Because what God is saying in this story is that, you know what? God is keeping the very best until now. With Jesus, and we'll see what kind of Jesus we're talking about, that Jesus is the wine giver. Jesus is the one who is now moving to the third point. He's the one who is inviting us to the real party because Jesus is the wine himself. So these parties are kind of setups in a way. The wine, as spectacular as that tasted, and it's more spectacular yet, it came from water and just instantaneously changed into wine. I mean, who wouldn't want to be a party like that, right? But Jesus says, you know what? Those things are mere pointers to my ultimate purpose. You remember in John chapter 6, what does he do? He feeds 5,000 people, right? 5,000 men, and I think as conservative estimate has it, probably 5,000 women and 5,000 children as the statistic, as a way of uh, kind of keeping numbers, tended to only count men. So if it is 5,000, we can speculate there probably was about 10 to 15,000. Imagine five loaves of bread and two fish, and Jesus fed all these people. If we had that happen here, there'll be no food trucks necessary. The entire city will solve the problem of food scarcity, no more food deserts in the city of Nashville, and people will want to come to Jesus as they did. And you know what Jesus said? Jesus said, you know what? I am the bread from heaven. I am the manna from God. And then people said, huh? And Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. You know what? They began to figure out Jesus is not talking about real bread. He gave us as a way to lure, in us, lure us into knowing Jesus, but the ultimate purpose is not merely about bread and wine because Jesus is the bread. Jesus is the wine, and he's the one who's saying, I want you to come to this party. So as you may have had choices about parties, Jesus says, you know what? This party really kicks. So what is this telling us about this water into wine? What are we to make of it? 
Is it merely telling us Jesus' power over creation as a creator? As Alexander Pope said, water saw the maker and it blushed, thus becoming wine. Or could we see though that event of water into wine as Christ as a real joy giver, but Christ himself as the true bread and wine, as I mentioned earlier? Or could it be pointing us to something like this? In Revelation chapter 19, it speaks about this final marriage banquet, the true party topping all other parties. Now think about the best party you've been to. Could be your friend's birthday party last week. Could be your daughter's wedding party last night. Could be, I don't know, a number of different things. Could be, think of that best party and blow that up into 50 times or more than 50 times an infinite degree, and this is a party that Jesus says, I am throwing for you. For all of creation, for all of creation, they're invited, and they will come and see my glory. And so this is what it says in Revelation chapter 19. It says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Marriage supper. There's going to be a dinner party to which all of us are invited. And we are coming. And God says, you know what? I am the true wine. I am the real party. All of us are invited to this meal and banquet where Jesus is no longer a guest, but takes over the party, and aren't we glad that he does, and becomes the host of the party, wiping away all of our tears, wiping away all of our sorrows, erasing from our horizon death and depression. Many of us remember the movie Lord of the Rings, that trilogy, and final installment, Return of the King, has these words. Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought, I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world, Sam asks. A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And he laughed, and the sound was like music. Or like water in a parched land. As he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment, for days upon days without count. Days upon days without count, he hadn't heard laughter. Maybe some of us are sojourning like that right now. And God says, I want you to come to this party. I want you to see me as the embodiment of all good parties, perfect party indeed, because I am giving that to you as my final gift. So let's move quickly to our final point, which is, what about me, Lord? I don't feel invited to the party. As a church community, we have experienced early departures of our beloved ones. This year, last year, the year before that, and as I've been working at Vanderbilt for the last 13 years, as is true for many other universities and colleges, institutions are experiencing, students are experiencing, families are experiencing the uptick of mental health concerns. Taking away of our own lives, being driven by and really, really overwhelmed by depression. And that's not accepting our, that's, our community is not immune to it either. So as I was finishing up my sermon, some conviction came over me. I, I was going to stop at three points and that was it. But then I felt like, wait a minute. 
What about for some people at Christ's prayers for whom this wedding banquet or this whole party and water into wine is actually causing them to be even more despairing and destitute and depressed? Some of us find weddings as reminders of our failures. Some of us find ourselves as being more down than up, fighting depressions as many of us are and feeling that we can identify with the psalmist in Psalm 88. Psalm 88, in case you didn't know, is one of the truly most beautiful and sublime psalms because it has no happy ending. Let me read it for us. But I cry to you for help, O Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me? Why, Lord, do you hide your face from me? From my youth, I've suffered and been close to death. I've borne your terrors, and I'm in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken away from me my friend and my neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. Sort of like Simon and Garfunkel's song, Sound of Silence. Hello, darkness, my old friend. Here I come to you again. You see, friends, I don't know about you, I'm so thankful to God that a psalm like that is included because here is a God who is big enough for our worst of nightmares, our lowest of lows, when we feel like I cannot possibly go to God because if God really knew, only if God knew who I was and what I'm like. But friends, you don't know what kind of God you're dealing with. God who includes Psalm 88 as part of our Christian scriptures, as part of our songbook, as part of our playbook, and says, God says, I know. I know what you feel like. I know that you're down. I know you're really, really depressed. I know you're feeling like, you know, just loathing even of life's existence right now. You see, then we need to take a look at Jesus. Who is this Jesus that is at this wedding? Because Jesus did not stay at the wedding and that was it. The same Jesus who said, fill the jars with water and offered abundance of wine, that same Jesus is the one who said, I thirst. Notice the irony. Someone who provided 120 gallons of wine, turning water into that, is the same one who says, I am thirsting, and he died of asphyxiation and thirst. He tasted death, he tasted hunger, he tasted death, And he experienced a separation from his father for you and for me temporarily so that even in the midst of, no, no, actually precisely in the middle of feeling they were damned and deserted by God, we can and ought to turn ourselves in the power of the Holy Spirit to Jesus yet once more. Friends, so here is this Jesus who's standing in front of us as we will come to this table of the Lord, as we are partaking of these tiny elements of bread and a little bit of grape juice or wine, remember, Jesus is the wine himself. Remember, it is Jesus who's giving himself to you and offering himself to you. Maybe, maybe today, we'll come to see the true significance of his death and resurrection and present intercession and his present presence here in these elements and around the table. May we come with hope, or we come with faith, or we come with love. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you that you are who you say you are, that you are the everlasting God, 
but you are the everlasting God who broke through time and space. You became one of us. You came to us as a guest at this village wedding party, and you turned that party upside down. When they were running out of wine and didn't even know it, you turned 120 plus gallons of water into wine, just as a foretaste of something far grander yet to come. Lord, as we think about these parties or festivities or feasts that we enjoyed, help us to be grateful for them, but also at the same time, may we take them as pointers to you because you yourself are our great hope, our great lover, and our great faithful one. We thank you, and as we come to the table of the Lord, may we be filled with hope, may we be filled with joy, and we be filled with yearning, yearning to be reunited with you, our true host. Thank you, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.